Welcome to the GeoMob podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, be it for fun or profit. Welcome to another GeoMob podcast. This morning, it's my enormous pleasure to be chatting with Ivan Sanchez Ortega. I've known Ivan since Phosphagy in 2013, and I think he's one of the funniest and most thoughtful people that I know in Geo. His LinkedIn profile says that he's a ninja pirate, robot, unicorn, rock star, whatever the heck that might be. He's a vocational computer scientist, a longtime floss advocate, and he's been in web development for 20 years and in GIS specifically for 15 years. So he's a veteran. Ivan, welcome to the podcast. Introduce yourself. Thank you for having me, Stephen. You have, I think you have summarized well uh, what I am. I, I studied computer science back in uh, 2000 to 2006 and then got involved into all kinds of GIS stuff. And here I am today. Okay. So. And you spent a long time in Norway, but now you're back in Sevilla. What changed? Well, jobs change. That's that's the short answer. I mean, uh, back in Spain, in uh, we're talking about 2011-12 when I moved. I have I was doing a part time job with a six month contract, and it wasn't get, gonna get renewed. And I got a recruiter reaching out to me and say, "Hey, Ivan, have you ever thought of working in Norway?" <laughs> and I said, "Not really, but show me what you got because right now I'm going to get to be out of a job in like two weeks." So. This fits perfectly in my schedule. And that's it. I moved to Norway to basically earn double to triple the money I was earning in Spain. That, that's how IT salaries are, yeah. I think, uh, up to this day in, in Norway compared to Spain. But you're back in Seville now. Yes. And that has to do with Maria. And that has to do with having bad experiences in uh, in the last job I had in Norway, which is uh, Nordic Semiconductor, I have I have mixed feelings about some of right. the people there. Okay, I'd say. so we won't slander Nordic Semiconductor. We'll just say it wasn't a successful part of the career. What are you doing now? Then you're back in Seville. Well, right now, as much as it pains me to say this, I'm doing basically nothing because I have been burnt out for maybe. Two years uh, since. That's the truth. I'm my, my productivity is low. I have uh, I'm not writing code every day. I struggle to focus on on tasks, and it's hard. I think it's kind of typical flaws maintainer burnout because back in the day, uh, maybe 2014, 15, 16, I was excited and and just energetic to go and maintain leaflet and do more things. It, it felt radiant. But then it turned out into a slog of people asking for things and having little to no return on myself. At least, I'm not saying that that's what happens. I know that a lot of people value the work, but how it feels to me is that my work is not valued enough. And that's that burns me out in the long run. And that's... Do you think that's particularly a feature of being a an open source developer? Because I do. I think so. I think so. Because we have the whole free versus libre point of view of, of open source software have, has shifted during the last decade, maybe. 
I mean, at least in my point of view. And before it was focus was very much on scratching your own itch. Yeah. This is a, a phrase that was very common to read and listen in in FOSS uh, conferences back in the 2000s or, or even in the late 90s. But right now, you don't listen much to that. You are more about engagement and getting your code to be used. And it's weird because getting your code to be used is not useful per se. You get your 15 minutes of fame, and that's fine, but that's it. In the end, you get exploited, unfortunately, and, and that's the truth. If you are doing some open source code and you're just maintaining open source code without asking for anything, you are going to be exploited. You, somebody's going to grab your code, use it, and ask you to maintain it for free, as in yeah. gratis, for no money. And that burns out people fast. And I, I'm afraid that's direction that the whole software industry is going. If, if there's a pool of people who are going to work for free in their own thing and then you copy it, you use that resource and you exploit that resource until that resource burns out, I think. That's a, what you're describing is potentially a terminal flaw in the open source development model. Well, I mean, I have some very radical point of view about what open source means, especially since I have been reading some classical economic uh, texts for the uh, Phosphor-G. Uh, what was the name of the last session fireside I did? I, I always forget. The Fireside yeah. Chat, yeah. that's right. I was reading The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith and The Capital by Karl Marx. So I do think there is a very clear difference between the neoliberal approach and the communist approach. Communist as in the theoretical economic model of the book the capital, not the actual implementation of communist authoritarian regimes. I, I right. want to make that clear because it always leads to confusion, right? But it's for English native speakers, you have to think, when I'm saying communist, you need to think about the, the commons, which is the air you breathe and the land you work on and the sand you, you get hit on your face with. That's the commons. Or so, in, in Marx's terminology, to each according to the, his need, from each according to his ability. I don't, I'm, I'm not uh, remembering if that's straight out from Marx or, or that's from uh, from Lenin okay. and Engels right. right now. I'll, uh, I'm, I'm, don't quote right. me on that, but I'm, I'm unsure of that at this point. So the, the point being that knowledge is a commons. Right. Right? Yep. It's something that it doesn't get used up if you use it, and it can be for everybody. There's no penalty to more people having that knowledge, a priori. Right. You know, then you got all the fights about controlling more and more. But in a nutshell, I think that the model that right now is being sold and, and the model, the software development model that is being advertised is the neoliberal model, which is, there's no rules for it. It's all deregulated. It's all MIT and BSD licenses. So everybody is free to do whatever they please at all. And that leads as a consequence to powerful players grabbing all the power. Right. Ideally, theoretically, this neoliberal model is good. But in my point of view, in practice, this leads to power grabs, which is what happens with when you, when one develops MIT or BSD code. 
You develop the code. There's no restrictions to it. Somebody will power grab it. So if we look at OpenStreetMap for a minute, just going from mm -hmm. software to data, the current ODBL license that they're using, to a large extent, is designed to prevent that, isn't it? The, uh, yes, the ODBL is one of the copyleft right. licenses. It's more akin to the GPL, or if you want to think in terms of Creative Commons, it's a Creative Commons right. share-alike. Uh, there, there have been uncountable amounts of discussion in the OSM legal mailing list yeah. back in 2008 to, to then. It's just, you could go threads on threads upon threads of emails discussing the in and, ins and outs of the license. But the general feeling, I think, of the OSM community is that having the ODBL, a copyleft license for the OpenStreetMap database, has allowed OpenStreetMap to be in the place it is right now. Yeah, I think there's a big difference that occurs to me as we're having this conversation, which is that the majority of people who contribute to OpenStreetMap do so as an additional activity, whereas many mm -hmm. of the software developers who are contributing to Floss software, this is their primary activity. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the challenges, you know, I, you know, I've got a lot of friends like you who are contributors to open source projects, and it's common to hear them talking about the expectations of people who use the software, the exploitation of large companies of that software, and the failure to have any concern or responsibility for the people who develop that software. And I think that is a problem that we are facing, you know, and I, I know lots of people who have expressed those concerns. And I don't know, from, from my point of view, OpenStreetMap, since it was created back in, I think, 2005, mm -hmm. it still followed that maxim of scratch your own itch. Yeah. The whole point of OpenStreetMap is we don't have data sets to work with, so we're going to make our own data set to solve our own problem. That was that, yeah. That's key to the inception of OpenStreetMap. It solves a problem. It solves my own problem. I can solve my own problem, right? Instead of, I'm just going to do this for whatever reason. So you've just reminded me, Ivan, a number yeah. of years ago, I think I spoke at one of the early state of the maps, sort of 2009, 2010, that sort of time. And I was highlighting the fact that the OpenStreetMap community was producer-centric. In other words, they were doing mm -hmm. this because they wanted, because they could do it and they wanted to do it. And I was saying mm -hmm. back then that if you wanted to massively grow usage of the project, you needed to become more user-centric and more focused on the people who were using it and what mm -hmm. they needed. And what I realize now when you said this about scratching the itch is that a decade or slightly more afterwards, and the usage of OpenStreetMap has exploded. It is colossal. You know, it's very possibly the largest map usage in the world. And that was all done by people scratching their itch. It wasn't done by them saying, yes. we need to do this because the users are asking for it. So they made what they wanted and they discovered that mm -hmm. loads of other people wanted it rather than going out to ask the other people what they wanted in the first case. Absolutely. When, when you see all the talks and push to engagement and use my library, and no, that, that's the wrong way. 
you need to have you need to fix your own problems i mean at the core of this is the concept of digital self-reliance or or the digital independence there's a lot of similar words to it which is i want to be responsible for my own digital life right i want to have my services i don't want to depend on a foreign company to host my private email things like right. this So I want to have my, I want to be by my own. I want to be able to be by my own. Okay. So right? it's not, it's not, uh, I, I don't want to disrupt. I don't want to take over. I want to be my own. I want to have control of my technology. I want to have control of my own computer. That That's also the, that's one of the main itches that plague all the false developers, I think. Yeah, I I think I've got to speak for the many people in the world who are less technical than you. <laughs> you know, and I remember listening to Richard Stallman talking at Phosphor in Boston, for example, you know, and, and thinking, yes, this is great for you guys who, who live with a code editor open on your, on your desktop and, you know, understand all this stuff and protocols and libraries and all of this there are people like me and even people a hell of a lot less technical with less technical ability than me you know take my wife or you know people's grandmothers yes, and absolutely. things like that and they can't do this stuff you know and they don't even understand what we're talking about when we're talking about owning our own digital experience and life so Somewhere we have to find a way of bringing those two things together, you know, and providing services that other people can just use without understanding how they work and can trust, which is the more important thing. Yeah, I, I think this this boils down to what's the cost and of having your own reliance, your own digital services, and what's the cost of outsourcing it and how much you're willing to pay for that or, or so. And also, if you have touched on, upon Stallman, and we, at this point in time, we know that Stallman is, let's say, let, let's put it mildly, less than a perfect person. Yes, that's that's fair. Okay. Um, I, I will just say that Stallman is less than perfect, to put it mildly. There has been a lot of discussion about Stallman's role at mm. the FSF, etc., etc. And this point of view of you need, everybody needs to worry about this problem so we all can fix it, it's wrong. It's obviously wrong. Nobody can worry about everything. That would be the solution to all of Earth's problems, but <laughs> our brain power yeah. is limited. <laughs> okay, I cannot worry about all the problems that we have. But the, the important thing that I said, and, and there's the difference with Stallman's point of view and my point of view, is that we should be able to own our own digital life. We don't need to own. We, we don't all need to own our own digital life. We need to be able to own it. And individual developers like me, individual nerds like me, need to be able to fight in the same conditions as the big companies. Yeah. Does that, does that make yeah, that sense? that makes sense. Right? So, so if we're talking about, I don't know, email or, or web pages, right? The, uh, the email protocols are RF, RFCs, which are public domain. So anybody, in theory, can write their own email server and client and send emails by themselves. But if you're talking about anything, let's say, you know, Google or Facebook or LinkedIn, you cannot do anything about that because you don't have access to the documentation. So you're not able to, okay? And whenever you open up the ability 
of nerds to fight in the same conditions, that shifts the market. Right. So that actually lowers the price of having your own digital services. And that if anybody can set up email servers, the cost of an email server is not going to be a monopoly. So that's going to, that, that's, that has to get down. That's the whole point about open source in the long run. It lowers the yeah. price. And this is just classical economic theory. Right? This, this is Adam Smith's argument uh, against monopolies. So let me take you just in a slightly different direction. And I hadn't thought we'd be talking about this quite so much, but it's fascinating. As an open source developer working, and you worked for years on the Leaflet project, didn't you? Yes. How, in an ideal world, would you earn a living from working on the Leaflet project? So ideally, if we're going to go to the ideal world of rainbow unicorns, mm -hmm. this should be done by state agencies, like public public state agencies. I'm, I also agree with, I don't know if it's the FSF or the, uh, I don't know what's the European counterpart with FSF right now. There's, Is there a European one? Okay. I think so. There, there's a European counterpart to the FSF. Anyone and the, listening who doesn't know, FSF is the Free Software Foundation. Yes, that's right. The point of view of these foundations is that public money should produce public code. I absolutely agree with that. So I can't see any argument with that at all. In fact, I think Canada did start to go down that route a number of years ago. I don't know how far they've progressed. Mm -hmm. I know that the Netherlands adopted a similar approach and... Mm -hmm. Very timidly, the UK has sort of, no, they haven't embraced it, but they, they've hinted that they're, they're leaning in that direction. Yes, absolutely. So my point of view is radically public money should produce public code. No question. That's my point of view. There are people which are more akin to the neoliberal side, which will argue that having private companies compete among themselves will lower the price of the final product, etc., etc., etc. I do not agree with that point of view. Neither that do I. tends to get monopolies instead. All that does is, absolutely, private companies compete to, to eliminate the competition and form a monopoly. And we don't mm -hmm. even have to name companies to talk about the impact that a monopoly in any specific niche of software causes. No, absolutely not. So in my ideal world, we should have entities like the Spanish National Geographical Institute and the UK Ordnance Survey and the US Geological, uh, it's the Geological it Survey is, in the is, US, yeah. I think. Yes. And you have some centers for geographical information and similar, every country t tends to have a similar public agency which deals with maps and geographical information. So in my ideal world, these entities would be collaborating among themselves to create a, let's say, an official open street map, which, by the way, th there's this thing called Inspire, mm -hmm. yep. the Inspire initiative in Europe, which is about creating SDIs or spatial data infrastructures. And this is a good... It's been amazing because I have been involved in that, in those as well, when I was in my OpenStreetMap times yep. with the uh, Spanish Infraestructura de Datos Espaciales. And they are great because they, uh, whenever Europe gets gets together, oh, sorry, I'm talking to UK it's people right, right now and seeing right. that Europe is too, oh I'm my God. People are going to hate me about I'm this. I'm still a European, <laughs> Ivan. <laughs> Some people are going to get angry at this, but anyway. 
the uh, European mapping agencies get together and agree to collaborate. And that's huge. Even if the end result is not as technically fanciful as, you know, the individual work or open street map, it's very good that there is the intention of working together among governments of different countries. That's absolutely great when it comes to maps. The uh, Inspire initiative has not delivered as much as one would wish, unfortunately. And OpenStreetMap has raised over the potential applications that the Inspire initiative was planning to cover, but they're good. And ideally, instead of having OpenStreetMap run by nerds, we, we would have some official OpenStreetMap run by the mapping agencies of the world. And those mapping agencies of the world would take care of the software as well, instead of spending money subcontracting private companies that are going to close down the software licenses. Yeah, and I, I think there's a lot to be said for the basic principle that if taxpayers' money funds software development, that software, the code, should be open and free to use for taxpayers around the world. And yes, the more collaboration that we get, the better. In fact, Yes. I often have wondered what would happen if the mapping agencies recreated the OpenStreetMap software stack, which is a massive mm -hmm. multi-editing software stack, but then applied some of the quality controls and classification rules that they use in traditional national mapping agencies you know the kind of product that you'd get yeah i have been i have been involved in that or at least i have seen it very closely and you enter a hellscape of technical decisions unfortunately <laughs> so i i do agree that i would love to see that happen yeah. absolutely but every mapping agency in the world has a slightly different requirements yeah. and so, oh, so it's not no it's not going to be able to, to no the current freeform tagging within OpenStreetMap, where in every community they have their own conventions as to how they want to tag and classify features. Yes. Uh, but you're now doing yeah, it with but, uh, national mapping agencies instead of local chapters of OpenStreetMap, perhaps. The problem being that mapping agencies have strict legal requirements as well. So in practice, harmonizing all the data sets is not possible, unfortunately. I wish yeah. it could. I wish it could be possible too. Uh, collate all the regional data sets into a national data set or national into, yeah. you know, international data sets. It's unfortunately not possible. It's just. But the Europeans have made some progress. It may be least common yes. denominator, you know, that there's only a limited amount they can agree on, but they have produced some very good pan-European data sets that are administered by all of the national mapping agencies. Eurogeographics have done that. I mean, uh, there's also the Copernicus yeah. uh, project, yeah. which is about Earth observation. And I, I, I got to tell you this, uh, the last one week ago, there was the Spanish and Portuguese conference for the Inspire mm -hmm. Initiative for the Spatial Infrastructures, which is the Iberian conference. And a friend of mine who is uh, leading some of the OpenStreetMap efforts right now told me that the people at the Spanish National Institute for Geography, they are jealous of OpenStreetMap because it reaches places that they should reach right. and they cannot. And one of them 
It's, it's amazing. I guess you're aware of the volcano yeah. in Spain, which is raging yeah. these days. It has been raging for yeah. two months now, and it's still raging for, uh, I don't know, it should be a, only a couple of weeks more. But there's a volcano in the Canary Islands, in the coast of Africa, and obviously the Copernicus Initiative led by Europe has been taking satellite imagery of the volcano and tracking down the lava flows and the ash the downfall and all that stuff. And also they have made, been making the uh, statistics of how many buildings have been affected. Affected as in covered by literal yeah. lava, literally covered by lava. The most striking thing for me was that the first images I saw for, for the Copernicus uh, estimation of affected buildings was using OpenStreetMap. <laughs> so you got a pan-European project about Earth observation, and the vector data set they use is not the pan-European vector data set because there's no one data set for that. They use OpenStreetMap because they, it has a lower barrier of entry. Right. And I think it's understandable. You can understand why people in white Spanish geographers get Upset, not mm. angry, but upset and jealous about this Copernicus project should be using my data set because that's my job. That's my, I work for the government and literally this is my job. And they're not using my data because using OpenStreetMap is literally easier. Well, it's easier. And also it's more, it's more complete. It's more, more current. There is a lot of yeah. discussion about completeness and quality. Let's, let's yeah. leave it at that. But I do understand why people get jealous of OpenStreetMap. At that point, so they they used to get jealous about Google Maps back in you know two thousand five, yeah. and now they get jealous of OpenStreetMap. But there's there's a lot of people talking together, and there's a there's a very good atmosphere of collaboration there. There's there's certainly no angry mobs trying to burn down OpenStreetMap or anything like that. We are all doing what we want to do, and we are all stretching our own itches, which is good. Yeah. So, so, Ivan, when I introduced you to this podcast, I said that you were the most one of the most thoughtful people in Geo that I knew. <laughs> I also said that I thought you were one of the funniest people in Geo, and we've been very serious <laughs> for nearly thirty minutes. So, I want to take you back a little bit. I want to go back because okay. I just think we should finish on a lighter-hearted note. You know, we can't be serious all the time. So, oh. I first met you in 2013. And to say that I met you is a little bit of an understatement because it was 2013, September, Nottingham in the UK, and I was the chair of Phosphor G. We had 850 people in a room, all dressed up in Robin Hood outfits because Robin Hood <laughs> was the theme for the Nottingham conference. And I'm doing the opening welcome speech, which has run on a little bit too long. And all of a sudden, Ivan Sanchez bursts onto the stage. There's a, one of those mirrored ballroom things up in the ceiling, which starts... A disco yeah, ball. Yeah. A, bistro, uh, a disco ball, yeah. And the spotlight's on this. Ivan bursts onto the stage and he starts singing. And... I was just, I didn't know what to do, what to say. So I just stood back and watched. And I think you had the whole audience standing up and sort of clapping, dancing and joining in with you by the end. 
What was that all about? Yes. What, how did you get to do that? So I think that all started back in Limerick in in one of the OpenStreetMap conferences, the one that was held in Limerick in 2008, I think. Because it was in Limerick, we did Limericks. Right. And yeah, if, if you don't live in Ireland this or, or UK, this might be a bit weird, but the Limerick is a kind of poetry. It's It has five verses and A-B-B-A-A right. uh, rhyme, if I remember correctly. Yeah. So we did limericks in limerick for as part of the conference. This kind of, you know, fun and easygoing pause between very serious talks. We did limericks, and everybody could go up on the stage and read limerick. That's the that's the thing. That turned out to be a haiku contest in Amsterdam in two thousand and nine, and then I organized the OpenStreetMap conference in two thousand and ten in Girona. So I decided to ramp it up into a song contest. So I remember somebody was singing Highway to Hell <laughs> on stage with a cardboard guitar. Yeah. <laughs> and at the very end of the session, we smashed the cardboard guitar on the floor. <laughs> that was absolutely, totally fun. And that kept going and going and going. It's something that people like. So, And I have to tell you something I may never have told you before, but I was chairing the Phosphagy Conference Committee and I'd said, we need something a bit exciting for the opening. And one of the team had said, leave it to me. And I had left it to him and it had become a thing that they weren't going to tell me what this something exciting was. And of course it was you and who else was it with you? Uh, uh, Vladimir Agafonkin, yeah. the, the leaflet the creator, creator, and, and he yeah. was also helping me. And it was, I think Gregory Marler, yeah. too. And I think I'll have a look, yeah. because I think somewhere on the internet, there is a short video of you doing uh, up all night mapping. And uh, yes. we'll put that in the show notes so people can see it. But you've mentioned haikus, and... That takes me to uh, maybe what will be the last thing we get to talk about. But uh, you and I have both been sceptical at times about what three words, the value of what three words, how original it was. And we both know that it's prompted several parody location systems. And the one mm-hmm. that I particularly liked, and I think, was this in Boston you did this? I think it was Boston. Where did you no, it was Bonn. It was Bonn. Bon. Bon. In Bonn, in that would be 2016, I guess. You introduced us to something called geo haikus. What were they? So, a my conception of the geo haikus is you take. It's called a geodetic grid. A geodetic grid is a way of slicing up the Earth into tiny polygons. Right be triangles, squares, or hexagons, or anything like that. There's there's a hundred ways of dividing the Earth into little pieces and counting the individual pieces. It's, it's nothing new. We have been doing this since the 70s. It's just tried and true technology. We know the capabilities. We know the shortcomings. We know it. So the Geohaikus is a quadrangular, triangular, uh, no, quaternary triangular hierarchical mesh which is comes from a paper from the 70s. I, I forgot the name of who published that paper, but it's a, it's an old paper. The concept is very simple. You take a, a D8, an octahedron, you assume that the Earth is an octahedron, and you subdivide its triangle into four triangles, and you do that a lot of times. So you end up with small triangles, which are like 50 meters square or so in surface. Right. 
And all of those have, have a number because it's trivial to put a number to small triangles. That number, you put it on something like base 10,000. And then on the other hand, you get 10,000 haikus, slice the first, second, and third verse of the haiku. So you have like three lists of verses. And then you have a number for a triangle, which turns into three different numbers from one to 10,000, because this is a very basic uh, math. uh, This is a modular operation. It's it's also quite trivial to do. So once you have three different numbers between one and 10,000, you choose one verse from each list. You put them together and you have a haiku. (laughs) The interesting thing is that when you move to a different triangle, the numbers change radically. And then you have three very different verses together but the three different verses are always the same for the same triangle you're in so every place is a point that's the that's the point and then what you were able to do and what i got a lot of pleasure from doing this was if you had a browser on your phone which was able to pick up the location of your phone which most browsers could mm-hmm. then the geo haiku would automatically appear in your browser with mm-hmm. some nice little ditty about where you were located. And as you walked around, they changed. And it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Yes, it's fun. But it also... It's fun. And my, yeah, my my point of view of how geodetic grids and this kind of word list or poem list or verse list works is, and forgive me for using these words, is the same as dildos. Okay. They should be used for novelty purposes only. (laughs) Okay. You can quote me on that. (laughs) But this kind of, you get a position and you get a polygon around it and that polygon has a number and that number splits into several numbers and those several numbers, you can read them. That should be used for novelty purposes only because the the shortcomings of that technology are so great. And that's what I did. I did something fun with that and it's fun and it's nice and it was poems and it's fun. And since then, there have been a lot of other parodies. And uh, I think the most recent one is Forking Maps. Yeah, yeah I think yeah. you're right. And it's the same principle. And and I absolutely agree with you, you know, that splitting the world into small polygons, whether they're squares, triangles, hexagons, and applying a code to them so that you can locate them. It's interesting. We've known about it for ages. It's not an address system, though. Uh, you know, My argument has always been that an address has context. It has a sense of proximity. You know, you know that two addresses that are near, you can tell when two addresses are near each other if they're in the same road, for example. Whereas with a, a geodetic grid, there's no way of relating the haiku that you generate or the th- word combination that you generate to any other. You actually can. You, you can have spatial distance into the geodetic grid, but then you have to change the algorithm and actually design the algorithm with that right. purpose in mind. Which, it, it's possible to do, but it's difficult to which do. Which is sort of what Google did with plus codes. Yeah. Yes, and exactly. So it, plus codes are the same thing that you get letters. Actually, they, since the naming is hierarchical, this, the beginning points to a similar area, and it's not a new concept. We we have had this concept with the maiden head locators, mm-hmm. which uh, ham radio operators use for decades as well right. and the yeah. military grid system and yeah. you know it, yeah we we have walked these paths before we we people in technology we know how this yeah. works if and it's possible to do it in so, fairness, yeah but my point of view 
It's it, novelty purposes yeah. only, man. In fairness, <laughs> lots of great ideas have built on an established body of knowledge, and it takes somebody to come along and say, work out how to apply apply that body of knowledge. I think when they work out how to apply it, and then they try and apply some kind of intellectual property rights to stuff that's been in the public domain for ages, that's slightly more questionable. But let's re- leave it there, Ivan, before we find yeah, ourselves... Yeah, let's leave it there because yeah, if we don't leave it there, I'm, I'm going to need a lawyer to keep this conversation okay. going. All right. Ivan, <laughs> it's been an enormous pleasure talking to you. You said to me before we started that we had enough to talk for two hours. You were absolutely right. Let's do this again in a few months' time. Absolutely, Stephen. Let's keep in touch. And let's yeah, do. we need to talk Take more. Take Thanks, everyone, for joining us today and listening to the GMOP podcast. Hopefully you've enjoyed the discussion. Please don't hesitate if you have any feedback for us or any suggestions for topics that we should cover in the future. You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomob.com. While you're there, if you're not yet on the mailing list, please do get on the mailing list where we once a month send out an email announcing future events, summarizing past events, and just generally sharing uh, events that you may find of interest. You can also, of course, follow us on Twitter, where our handle is geomob. You can follow Steven at Steven Feldman. You can follow me at Fryfogel. You can check out Mappery at mappery.org. And of course, if you need any geocoding, please check out my service, which is opencagedata.com. We look forward to you joining us again at a future episode and of course, seeing you at a future GeoMop event. Hope to see you there soon. Bye.